Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is a crossover episode with the Philosopher and the News podcast, which is a new, newish philosophy podcast that already seems to have gained a lot of traction, got some good guests, um, including some guests that I've had on this podcast, like Elizabeth Anderson. Um and is a really great resource, so if you need one more philosophy podcast in your life, definitely check that out. So this is a conversation between me and the host of that podcast, Alexis Papazoglu, and we're discussing Brexit and freedom. Did leaving the EU make us more or less free? And as philosophers are wont to do, we kind of get down to the question of then, well, okay, but what do you mean by freedom? Which, as long-term listeners of this podcast will know, is something I've spent quite a lot of time on. So I don't think the conversation needs much more introduction than that. I found it a really interesting conversation to have. These are topics that are definitely, you know, in my wheelhouse. Um, So I hope you enjoy it too. Let's get started. Only other note is if you do enjoy this podcast, please do support on Patreon. I don't do any commercial advertising, and I never will. I think it spoils podcasts. So all of the costs associated with this show are covered by the generous support of listeners. Um, If you think the episode you're about to listen to is worth a couple of bucks, then I'd love to have them. (laughs) Um, And that's about what I've been suggesting, $2 an episode. But it's it's really up to you. You can do a dollar, you can do a hundred dollars. Definitely urge you to do $100 if you can, uh, but it's completely up to you. So if you enjoy the show, consider chipping in. And uh, yeah, as always, I'm very, very grateful to anyone who does sponsor us. If you're not able to sponsor, you can also help support the show by sharing and recommending to friends. And thank you as well to everyone who just does that. Okay, let's get straight to it then. This is Brexit and Freedom. Toby Buckle of uh, the Political Philosophy Podcast. Welcome to the Philosopher in the News Podcast. And Alexis Papazoglu of uh, the Philosopher in the News Podcast. Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Well, <laughs> whichever of those you're listening to this on, how's it going? Yeah, it's going. It's going as as well as possible, I guess, under under the current conditions. Eagerly awaiting for. Our freedoms to, to be to be restored and being able to do a, a few more things. Looking forward to from I think it's from next week we can again meet with six other people outdoors rather than just one person. So that'll make for a nice change. I'm looking forward to bars and restaurants, but I think that's a little bit further over the horizon. A little bit further out. First outdoors only, so it d- depends how cold it is. I'm, I'm always a. Uh... Never against a beer garden, even if it's a bit cold. Um, Mm. Talking of freedom, though, we're going to do this in a different context, right, of um, Brexit. 
we're going to start with your article on this. Why don't you? Why don't you? I'm always interested in what got people thinking about stuff in the first place. What was the sort of prompt for you to write about this? Was there a specific thing that got you thinking about it? Yeah. So this was. Um... an idea that was very vague to begin with. I kind of remembered that I had some time ago read an essay by Isaiah Berlin about different conceptions of liberty. And this was during the uh, run-up to the 2016 uh, referendum and, you know, I was listening to all the arguments on both sides. And I just had this sort of feeling that there was a lot of kind of conceptual confusion around some of the slogans that were being used, like take back control or um, some of the other phraseology by, you know, people like Nigel Farage about how Brexit was going to be Independence Day for the UK. And I just had this kind of nagging feeling like there was there was a little bit more to what was being discussed and that it was very one-sided. My initial instinct was that the the kind of underlying concept of freedom that was um, that was under the surface there was a was only one side of the of the concept and that there were other ways of thinking about freedom that were kind of left undiscussed and so what I did was I I went back and revisited the essay by Isaiah Berlin and you know I was kind of right that there were these different concepts of liberty that he discusses and I was kind of right that it was very much one of those the negative type of freedom that was uh, emphasized in in the Brexit sort of campaign so yeah and I had this sort of itch to sort of try and say something useful about about it all try and do what you know what philosophers can sometimes do which is to to offer some conceptual clarity about um you know the use of certain ideas and the use of certain concepts in in debate, and so that was that was the background to what prompted me uh, to write that piece. Before we get to the positive negative distinction, I've got a. This is a question I think about quite a lot. Do you think the political left, and in this case, I'm using that more in the case of like the Remain side. You can argue exactly if those terms are the same. Perhaps they're not. Um, has sort of seeded the field a bit when it comes to freedom, because if I'm looking at the work the the value is doing in the world today, freedom is used a lot in sort of defense of um, a, a sort of quote-unquote free market system or an economically capitalist system. Mm. It's often used in the free speech sense quite a lot on the right side of various yeah cultural debates that we're having. And I agree with you, it definitely was, if not explicitly invoked, always sort of beneath the surface mm. of the Brexit rhetoric, mm-hmm. the, 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 the sorts of the vision of the world that, that was being offered was a liberatory one or a purportedly liberatory yeah. one. Now, that's not the whole story. People talk about worker freedoms, um, social justice movements, often have an idea of liberation at their heart. Um, But it seems more muted, and especially on the national level. Mm. At least in 2016, the Remain side was not making those big sorts of of values appeals. And it was making a more sort of boring, quite Mm. frankly. Pragmatic um, arguments. Technocratic argument. Yeah, exactly. So 
I don't. I, do you do you share that assessment that perhaps the left has sort of ceded that ground, not totally, but perhaps more than than they should. Mm. Well, I'll I'll talk first about the context of of the Leave Remain, um, and I think that was very much the case that the Remain side had sort of ceded the talk about values or political values to to the Leave campaign. And in fact, if I remember correctly, I, I end that kind of blog post with saying exactly that that you know the the, the concept of freedom is is a very emotive one. It's one that people can very easily associate with. And that we should not let it be monopolized by one side, and we should not let it get a very narrow conception of it to monopolize our debate. So that was very much part of what I was thinking. I was trying to sort of, you know, speak to the Remain campaign in a way and say, like, look, guys, you know, you have a lot of arguments that you can use that talk about freedom here as well. Don't let it only be monopolized by the Leave campaign. That you can make arguments about how Brexit. Uh, would limit the UK's freedom in various ways. Um, so, so that's one side, and I think that's absolutely true. In the broader context of right versus left, I think, again, you're probably right that the language, at least, that the left uses when it talks about things that could be maybe cast in the, in the framework of freedom isn't done so, and it's done maybe in a bit more convoluted ways that have less of an impact. And so we do end up with, again, freedom being monopolized by by the right and by um, people who, you know, again, we, we're having this debate now again in the UK about freedom of speech and mm-hmm. the free market and all the, all the rest of it. Um, but interestingly, I think we, <laughs> we, we briefly discussed this in, a, in one of our email exchanges about how Tony Blair writes this letter to Isaiah Berlin towards towards the very end of his life about how how he thinks that he's he's too down on on the positive uh, conception of freedom, and we'll get to what that is in a minute, and that that is a useful value for the contemporary post Soviet Union left to sort of um, emphasize a little bit more. Because the left is concerned about those kinds of things. It is concerned about the autonomy of individuals and how that might be, you know, undermined by things like poverty. And I would say that even, you know, your kind of left-leaning liberals are also concerned with freedom in a way that goes beyond the way that um, the right thinks about it. So, you know, the right is always concerned about freedom in the context of the state abusing its power to limit the freedom of, of citizens. But of course, what we have today, to a large extent, is corporations using their uh, extreme power to limit the freedom of either their users, if we're talking about you know things like big tech companies and social media companies like Facebook and Google and the ways in which they manipulate us or they try and undermine our autonomy. You know, these are all things that even more traditional, so so to speak, liberals and you know John Stuart Mill's kind of tradition uh, and a bit more left-leaning liberals would and should care about. Um, so I very much agree with your point about it having been left to the right and that it's totally unjustified and we should claim it back. 
I'll I'll double I'll double down on um, that answer. And the idea that the value can mean different things and it can um, be invoked by very conflicting sets of interests, that's not a sort of modern post yeah, postmodern type of no. You know, no. The value has been used by opposing groups since the beginning. You know, it was central to the ideological justification of Greece and Rome. Um who were slaveholding societies, of course. But it was also something that was very central to how groups um, that were challenging in some ways that power were seen as socially dangerous. For instance, early Christians used mm. the value a great deal. Um, it was central to the justification for both the British and sort of American empires, but also central to nationalist or sort of proto-nationalist challenges to them. It was central to both sides of the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. So th- this sort of duality or multiplicity of meaning has has always been here. And I've I've I have a hunch that there's there's a lot of mileage that the left can get out of it. The left it's not that the left doesn't use values. But I think in recent years, it's been more comfortable with equality, welfare, mm. justice, things like that as its foundational appeals. Um, and when you see people use freedom, it tends to be very effective. So I don't know how closely you follow US politics, but do you, um, did you see Andrew Yang's campaign for president? Um, yeah, I did. I did follow it briefly, so, not in any great detail, but yeah. No, me either. It's not super significant, and he was never a major player. But one thing he did that was quite interesting is he took an idea that's been around in left-wing circles for a long time: universal basic income, mm. which has always been sort of premised in an appeal to equality and welfare, and just rebranded it as the freedom dividend. Yeah, yeah, and like, very clever. Me, that's genius. One, <laughs> yes. it just sounds a lot cooler, and two, it sort of points the way to a different set of arguments which isn't we want to give people money because they're suffering and we need to Mm -hmm. alleviate suffering that's part of it it's also we want people to have a sort of baseline of resources to positively empower them to lead the sorts of lives that they want to lead and this isn't about charity to the worst off it's about all of us um being able to make our life choices as we want and that is a matter of having resources to yeah. do so. So I wasn't an Andrew Yang supporter or anything. I just thought it was an interesting, mo- an interesting moment of like an applied instance of what we're talking about. Mm. When people try it, it does really seem to to work. Yeah, and of course, in the American context, liberty and freedom are, you know, values that transcend. Uh, I think the Republican Party, I mean, you know, maybe they, again, try and monopolize it a little bit, but it is sort of this sort of foundational American value. And so if you <laughs> if you appeal to it, you can get a lot of people uh, on the same page. I want, to, I want to come back to what you said about Andrew Young and, and his argument for how, you know, when you're poor, you're essentially deprived of certain freedoms and we'll discuss how, you know, Isaiah Berlin um, doesn't think that that's the case, right? Uh, That he, his conception of of liberty as purely negative liberty um, doesn't allow you to make that move, doesn't allow you to say, look, if you can't actually do anything with your life because you're so poor, 
even if no one's actively stopping you from doing things, you are not really, you know, you're not really free. You lack the ability to enjoy that freedom, is I think a quote <laughs> from Berlin, yeah. which yeah. has always seemed a bit iffy to me. But yeah. we've, we've, we've circled around Berlin a bit. Do you, could you cover um, the positive-negative distinction then? Like, we've referenced that a few times. Would it, would it be useful to spell that out? Yes, it would. So, as as you said, um, you know, the idea that freedom has various different meanings and different interpretations is definitely not a postmodern idea. Uh, this is one of the opening lines in Isaiah Berlin's essay, um, two, two Concepts of Liberty, which is to say that the meaning of the term, he says, is so porous that there is little interpretation that it seems able to resist. Um, so, you know, so he very much recognizes that uh, this is this is true of it. And he goes on to try and basically clarify a little bit what those different meanings are. And he says there are various ones, but he's going to focus on the two main ones that he thinks dominate the history of philosophy. And on the one side, he identifies negative liberty, which, as he sees it, amounts to uh, the absence of external obstacles and constraints on one's actions. And he goes on to specify that it's not any kind of obstacle or constraint, but it really is people uh, deliberately obstructing you. Uh, that, that is the relevant uh, type of constraint here. And then he also identifies uh, positive freedom, which is a different, uh, very different type of concept, and says that it has its source in the wish of the part of the individual to be his own master. The individual wishes his life to and decisions to depend on on oneself, not on external forces or or anything else. This positive um, version is a lot more vague than the negative um, concept of liberty. The negative concept of liberty is very clearly delineated. The positive liberty concept is a little bit more vague and therefore has various different interpretations and can be interpreted as autonomy, for example. It can be interpreted as uh, effective freedom. It can be interpreted as self-realization, and we can go into into all of those uh, in a minute. When I'm trying to explain this, like, you know, I've done some episodes on this, but like if I was teaching a course on it, I think the way I would introduce this to students would be negative liberty is the absence of deliberate interpersonal constraints. And we can sort of cash out what all those words mean and why, but it's quite a nice, clear definition. This is what it is, you know, if you were trying to, like, teach someone this, mm. it would be quite straightforward to teach. Um, and then when I came to positive liberty, I would just say, this is basically an umbrella term for everything else. Mm -hmm. And if you want to get really a really, like, tight definition, you're going to, like, throw yourself because you're really going to struggle to find something that matches self-realization, authenticity of desire, autonomy, yes. self-development. Like, you're going to struggle there. And even Berlin, I think, sort of struggles and sort of recognizes that he is struggling. Do you, would you agree with that as a characterization? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very true. And 
there is a reason why it's cut up this way because Berlin essentially thinks only negative liberty is genu is a genuine expression of the term. And I think all the other ones that we just mentioned, uh, autonomy, authenticity, self-development, self-expression, um, he thinks are, are, are misunderstood as liberty. They're not really forms of liberty. Mm. There are other values. They're, they're, they, they are political values. But he wants to very much say that it's, it's, it's almost perverse when we talk of those things as liberty. Now, I don't think he's right about that. I think that a lot of those concepts, most people would recognize as expressions of, of the concept of freedom, especially when it comes to something like uh, autonomy, you know, being able to self-determine yourself in some way to set your own principles by which you carry out your life. Um, and especially in the political context, I think that's very true that um, th when we think of a state as free, we do think of it as <laughs> being able to essentially make its own uh, decisions about its future, make its own laws and, and so on. But yeah, maybe that's the reason why positive freedom is this sort of vague, murky concept that just includes various other things um, that Berlin just, you know, names under the same under the same term. I think if I were to be charitable to it, and I'm I'm not I'm a, I'm a critic of Berlin, but I think if I were to be charitable to it, I'd say it's not a. <laughs> It's a good typology for some very specific things, but it's often not a very good typology for the things that people have tried to do with it. You know, it's not two concepts that are both clearly explicable. It's one concept and other stuff. It's also not a great typology if you want to characterize either real-world political contestation or the history of political thought, because most political ideologies that utilize freedom, most historical thinkers, in fact, tend to contain elements of both. Even someone like Hobbes, who's held as like the mm. archetypal negative liberty theorist, a lot of recent interpretation has argued, no, there's some positive stuff sort of there on the side, under the surface. I mean, the, the negative predominates. I think the way it's a useful typology, and I take this from Nancy Hirschman, is it's a way of thinking about, like, what are, like, the underlying assumptions about human nature that you're bringing to the table when you think about um, freedom. Mm. Like, are we, you know, the, the part of people that wants to be left alone? Mm. Is that sort of dominating our thinking? Or the part of people that exists in community, in relationship with others, is that dominating our thinking? Or a, concept, a conception of people as active versus a conception of people as potentially vulnerable? Um, so it's a sort of useful typology for like exploring um, like the base level assumptions you're bringing to the table. It's not a super useful typology in terms of separating out actual political thought. I'll, I'll pause there. Do you, would you agree with that? that that's like the, the best spin I can put on it. But in general, I'm not sold on this. Yeah. I think you're right that you would be very hard-pressed to just say, you know, the right is only interested in 
the concept of negative liberty and only wants to promote that concept of negative liberty. And the left is only interested in, you know, the positive or one aspect of the positive aspect of liberty. Uh, Yeah, politics is a lot messier than that. Um, (laughs) Ideologies are not as clear cut as that, Uh, especially, you know, these days uh, when defining exactly what a conservative politics is or a progressive liberal left-wing politics is is far from straightforward i don't think that you could map the political landscape of any you know western european country or the us um by thinking of it through through berlin's distinction um and I think, you know, I, I think that's true of Brexit as well. So my initial mm. hunch that, you know, the Leave campaign was basically only interested in the negative liberty that the country would gain if it left the European Union, namely, you know, the European Union would no longer be able to pose any constraints on what the UK wanted to do. It would have no say over, for example, its immigration policy, which was, of course, a big part of the Brexit campaign, you know, it's not it's not true that the Leave campaign was only interested in that because clearly part of the argument about sovereignty and part of the argument about, you know, taking back control <laughs> had to do with, you know, autonomy. It had to do with the ability of the UK to set its own laws. And that's very much um, a part of the positive conception of liberty, at least in Berlin's books. So yes, it's very, it's a lot messier uh, than than that. I think what you probably could say, though, is that, again, often sort of beneath the surface, there was a sort of strong appeal to negative liberty within the Leave case. It just wasn't an exclusive appeal. To that, there was a much broader, sort of morally comprehensive vision that was being offered there. It wasn't just non-constraint. But the language of non-constraint did permeate quite a lot of that discussion. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I think it did most of the work, and it was also the most easy to spot, if you like, because Mm. as we said, the concept of freedom was never explicitly referenced i'm pretty sure i can find a quote by boris johnson at some point saying you know people should choose freedom by voting for brexit but it was never really there it was always like lurking below the surface and it was much easier to spot you know uses of um the concept of freedom as as you know non-constraint rather than you know, freedom as self-determination, freedom as self-realization and things like that, even though I do think some of the arguments made um, were also using using those kinds of those kinds of um, concepts of freedom. But, you know, as we said, the right does a little bit lean a bit harder on the negative concept of liberty. And so to the extent that, you know, again, this is not a perfect match, but the extent to the extent that the leave campaign was more led by politicians on the right. Uh, yeah, they leaned a bit heavier on, on that concept. Okay, so we've, we've done a lot of context building. We've talked about the positive, negative in Berlin. We've talked about like the work 
the sort of appeals, even sort of implicit appeals to this sort of doing in the world. Do you think that's right? Assume for the sake of argument that we can talk coherently about negative liberty when the agent is a state. Is it is that claim explicit or implicit that, you know, removing the UK from EU control is a freedom increasing proposition, at least with respect to that conception that we've laid out? Mm. Yeah, so I think on, on the surface, obviously the the argument of the of the Leave campaign rings true, right? That, you know, the UK was constrained by various things, by various laws uh, as being part of the EU, that by leaving the EU, it would it would no longer be. Um, and so, again, to highlight the, the uh, issue of immigration, you know, which is one that was used by, by leaving the EU, the UK can now basically draw its own immigration laws and not not be accountable to the EU in any way in what it does. However, what I what I tried to pick out in um, that blog post that I wrote and then a slightly longer piece was that this in a way conceals um, the whole truth. One thing that was um, that is concealed by that argument, I think, is that when you are in a political context, usually when one of your negative freedoms is limited um that means that you also gain a different kind of negative freedom so in the the context of the uk of course you know the uk didn't have the freedom to close down its borders to eu citizens but at the same time the uk the, the uk citizens had the freedom to you know cross the borders of all other eu countries without any interference you know freely and of course that freedom is now um, no longer there. There are constraints on where UK citizens can go for how long, whether they can work abroad and so on. So, you know, I thought that was an obvious way in which the Remain side could uh, counter the arguments for how our freedom is limited as a country when, when being part of the EU by arguments about how we gain freedom by being part of the EU. And of course, the same applies to um, to other things like you know trading in goods and services with other EU countries, you don't have the freedom to impose tariffs on on goods and services coming from the EU. But at the same time, everything you export, all the goods and services you export, are also free from uh, tariffs and so on. So there is, it seems to me in that context at least that there are two sides to the negative freedom. On one side, some of it is. Uh, compromise, some of it is limited, but at the same time, the flip side is that you gain uh, a kind of freedom. The idea that Britain is made less free by European membership, you know, the, from a pure negative view, you can kind of see that argument once you grant the presuppositions. But I think once you acknowledge that you can meaningfully talk about other aspects of freedom, it becomes much, much less obvious. Um, so if you talk about something like it, I'll, I'll just prompt you to go on um, effective freedom, for instance. So yeah, so that's one type of freedom that doesn't, doesn't fall under the concept of negative freedom. Um, and it is one that Berlin doesn't really recognize as a, as a genuine expression of the concept. 
But effective freedom essentially amounts to you know having the power, having the ability to act in the ways that one wants to act, as opposed to merely having you know someone actively preventing you from acting in such a way. So in some ways, this concept of effective freedom is useful, I think, because it highlights that the the concept of negative freedom is what we might call merely formal freedom. So you know. The absence of external constraints when wanting to do a certain thing gives me negative freedom, but that freedom is not really enough to guarantee that I will actually be able to act in such a way. So even if one were to grant, for example, Leave campaign arguments about how the UK's negative freedom will increase once it leaves the EU, uh, and that it will be free of the external constraints imposed by it. Uh, there is a question about whether its effective freedom might in fact diminish and whether it has in fact diminished, right? So this is something the Remain campaign was aware of. It hadn't really put it in those terms, but the argument was very much like once the UK leaves the EU, it will find itself being less powerful, being outside of a powerful club of uh, other countries. And so it might not be able to do the things that it wants to do, you know, striking those international trade deals that it wanted influencing decision-making on a global, you know, scale on issues like, say, climate change or international safety, terrorism, and so on. So granted, you can grant the fact that the UK could be nominally free to do anything it wants, <laughs> as it were, once it leaves the European Union. There wouldn't be any legal authority preventing it from doing much of what it wants. But whether it would be effectively unable to do those things, unable to have without the power to, you know, strike the deals that it wants, um, or have the capacity to influence the rest of the world. Yeah, is a different question. And so arguably being a member of the EU made the UK's effective freedom greater than than not being a member uh, of the EU. Now Berlin does recognize kind of this this type of argument. He he uses it when talking about an individual uh, so he says that, you know, uh, he says something like some might say, and maybe without some reason that if, if a person is too poor to obtain something, even if it's not forbidden by law, for example, to buy a loaf of bread or to travel the world or whatever, um, is just as unfree as if there was a law that forbid him to do those things. Mm. So he recognizes that it's almost absurd to say, well, even if you are so poor as to be unable to buy a loaf of bread, you're still, you're still free. <laughs> you're free to do so. It's just, you know, you're just unable to do that. Um, <laughs> so he recognizes that, that argument, but he disagrees that freedom is the right way to understand that. Right? He insists that one's freedom can only really be limited by someone deliberately intervening and, and preventing you from doing something. So if your poverty isn't down to the fact that, you know, you've been a victim of slavery or coercion of some kind, then your liberty remains intact. And even if you don't have the ability to act and to enjoy your liberty um, due to your condition, then uh, you're, still, you're still just as free as, as someone who does have that ability. But that to me sounds a little bit perverse as an argument and is one of the reasons that I think Berlin's concept of negative liberty is is very limiting and and points us to the fact that there has to be something more to to freedom than that. 
And also values values don't exist in a vacuum. They exist in sustaining and sometimes conflicting relationships with other values. And I think the goal here is to sort of get a very delineated, the goal in Berlin's case is to get a very delineated account of freedom that doesn't, that can just act almost purely orthogonal to other values. So you can say, this is freedom, this is what it is. And in principle, it really doesn't have anything to do with welfare or even autonomy. It's just yeah. there. But like, to, that's not how values are actually invoked in everyday speech or political discourse. They sort of exist in a mess together, like freedom runs into autonomy, it runs into individualism and choice making mm. and so on. To the point where with a lot of these debates, it's sort of, you know, it's not always clear where one begins and one ends. So I'm a little bit, you know, as someone who's perhaps more interested in day-to-day political debates than like an idealized philosophy it's i'm just skeptical of not the coherence but the utility of being able to really bracket and demark a concept in that way you can do it and it can be internally coherent but I sort of wonder, but then what does that do for you if that's not how people actually use concepts most of the time? Mm. I mean, that, that sort of, you know, takes us back to sort of Plato, maybe, even, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, uh, what is the role of philosophy when it comes to uh, explicating concepts? Um, you know, are you just... Are you there to clarify the ways in which people actually use the concepts in everyday life? Or are you there to offer some kind of normative rule about, you know, what is a correct use of the word justice and an incorrect uh, use of it? What really counts as justice or what really counts as freedom versus just the way people use those words? And I I do think there's something to that, you know, platonic (laughs) Um, project almost that you know you you are as philosophers you're not just you know mapping out the way that people use words you're also trying to you know shape the meaning of those words in some way and part of the thing that philosophers of you know that that ilk do is to try and offer sort of definitions of them now we know you know post Wittgenstein uh, post the later Wittgenstein and everything that you know, tricky concepts really don't have definitions that are watertight. They're always going to be problems. And as you rightly say, concepts spill into one another. There are, you know, family resemblances between different kinds of concepts that we might think of as different. Can I can I just respond to that, that, dis- that distinction sure. you created? So very simply, I don't see those two as mutually opposed. I see them as in informing. Um, I think something like family resemblances or essential contestability is not like some abstract philosophy game. These are just fairly obvious descriptions of how most of us use language most of the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that stands in contrast to arguing for a preferred meaning of a term. Um, I think it's perfectly coherent to say that when we look at how freedom is used 
we see a plurality of meaning. Some of those meanings can work together, some will conflict with each other, and that we might have we might start to have reasons for preferring one meaning over another. You can appeal to external internal or external consistency, you can appeal to how effective it is, you can appeal to does it imply a vision of the world that will help people or harm them. There's all sorts of criteria you can bring in. I think what it moves, it doesn't say that you can't have, you can't be moving in that direction. It does, accepting the, the sort of basic reality of family resemblances and essential contestability, does slightly shift the goalposts a little bit away from a final, definitive, unified proposition that you will find at the end of it, which will never change across cultures and will always just exist in the heavens for us, yeah. and that will act independently of how we think about other things. Mm-hmm. That it does rule out. But I think you can definitely say, in the circumstances in which we find ourselves, this meaning is more useful, it's more helpful, it's more likely to persuade. I don't, I don't think you have to give up on, on like saying, I like this idea of freedom better than that one. You just have to be a bit more cautious about what, what victory would look like there. Sorry, that was a little long, but I did want to get that in. That's, that's how I see that. No, I, I, think, you're, I think you're right. I think um, we find this kind of move in, um, in John Rawls's transition from a theory to justice to... Um, uh, political liberalism or justice as fairness? Political liberalism, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's, a, it's political liberalism the second. So, so John Rawls is, you know, kind of the most mainstream political philosopher of the second half of the 20th century, at least in the English-speaking world, um, you know, puts forward this theory of justice in his book, uh, A Theory of Justice. And, and a lot of the criticism that he gets is that, well, this is, this is just a theory of justice that applies to you know, someone who lives in a liberal society already, someone who lives in a particular time in history, uh, maybe even someone of a particular kind of uh, a socioeconomic background and so on. And even though in that first book, he sort of puts it forward as almost like the theory of justice, um, in in his later work, he very much contextualizes it and accepts that there is this kind of historical context and cultural context in which those arguments make sense so i guess that's that would be that would be the space that you want to to sort of occupy and say it, it you know philosophy doesn't only have to be you know practical philosophy of going out in the streets and and you know doing a survey of what people think freedom or justice is um but that you can try and shape those concepts but not in this yeah absolutist platonic way where you give the definition of something for one and once and for all but but you 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 kind of clarify it a little bit in the context that you're operating in um but what i i think what i was going to say about berlin is maybe maybe this kind of urge to have very clear cut definitions of uh concepts like freedom comes from his um kind of idea of both pluralism but also his his uh kind of deep conviction i think that 
values do conflict with each other and we should be very open about that and you know we shouldn't always pretend that you know freedom and justice go together or freedom and i don't know equality go together but that they can indeed be as you were saying earlier orthogonal to each other and that we need to recognize that kind of fundamental sometimes clash between that was a needlessly obscure word i just brought in now wasn't it <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but you know, oppo- opposed, opposed to each other, um, and I think he just wants us to acknowledge that. I think that maybe that's one of the reasons why he's pushing this to recognize that some some commitments put us at odds with other commitments that we might have. I think you can accept that though, without accepting the idea that you know, lack of money is in no way related to freedom. Because there will, there will be examples where freedom conflicts with other values. I don't think I've said anything that disagrees with that. Yeah. I mean, the classic, the, cl- the classic example is obviously, you know, freedom and equality, right? Yeah. Like, that people bring up. Uh, the more, the more, the more uh, a free society you live in, fewer laws and regulations, or the market is more free, then you're going to have more inequality and, and vice versa. The more kind of equality you try and produce, you kind of have to restrict Uh, freedom in various ways. I think that's what he has in mind. Yeah, I think... So I've got a hunch with Berlin. I think there's also a sort of shadow of the Second World War here, in that Mm, there's a big move in liberal political philosophy in the 50s and 60s. So something like the, you know, Popper's work on totalitarianism, or there's a lot written about, like, authoritarian or totalitarian democracy in this case, that... You know, and you do want to take a step back there and appreciate what these people just lived through that you didn't. Mm. I think there's a sort of desire to really set up a defense of liberalism that is secure and cohesive. The inner citadel, right, as Berlin calls it, where we're defending quite a narrow set of doctrines, but we really want to get something that, like, rules everything else out by default that we are not we want to have a barricade from nazism and soviet communism yeah. and stuff and even to some extent i think something like rawls's critique of utilitarianism there's something of that under the surface of like yeah but what if like the majority race could like gain more utility by enslaving a minority one there's there's, there's that undercurrent there i think in liberal political philosophy for quite some time and i think he's identified he's sort of thought i've got this definition of liberty that's very tight it's very constrained and it absolutely rules out in advance some sort of totalitarianism and the thing with like talking about autonomy or stuff like that is it just feels a little bit less secure what about if someone comes along with arguments about well my autonomy is served by oppressing others and so i think he sees in positive liberty that danger i think incorrectly but that danger of political authoritarianism yeah i think you're you're on the money there with with the historical context and thinking about it and um when i listen to your episode where you talk about this essay, I, I thought that was a very good point. That it, there's clearly a worry that you know any concession towards 
uh, you know, positive conceptions of liberty basically lead down the road to, you know, Soviet-style communism, authoritarian politics, and he really wants to close the door as, you know, as firmly and, and securely as possible to all that. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's the reason. I think that's still... I don't think it's fully justified. I mean, of course, you can't, um, you know, as you said, we it's hard to imagine being in that cultural and historical context ourselves. We are in a very different place today than, than when Berlin was writing. But I think conceptually, it is a little bit un, unfair on, um, on positive conceptions of freedom. And I think... I think it's it's also based on a very philosophical maybe understanding of one version of that um concept and it's it's more to do with this um with this idea of positive freedom which has to do with the authenticity of the desire that guides one's actions right and so in his discussion Berlin talks a lot about Plato and so Plato already in the Republic you know puts his finger on this idea that not all of our actions are the result of the authentic self. There is a there are different levels to ourselves. There is the authentic self, and then kind of lesser versions of ourselves. And some actions might be the result of our, you know, unbridled passions and our impulses, and those are not genuine expressions of the self. It's the rational side of the self, the reasoned kind of bit that that is true, and that and whose decisions therefore kind of a real expressions of ours they're they're the authentic expressions of ours and i think i think you can make sense of this idea and we and we still have that idea in our everyday culture right we talk about um you know making impulsive decisions and we regret them and we talk about how when we're addicted to something you know, we're not fully in control of ourselves. And, you know, all those things are even recognized in our legal framework to some extent, right? So I think that idea is, is true in some ways, that there is, there is in some ways a divided self. But the problem that Berlin has, I think, is that both in the history of philosophy, as well as in that uh, sort of Soviet era that, you know, they're, they're kind of living through, is that this idea of the of the higher self is identified with something not that that is not even a part of the individual, but that is something like the state or mm. society as a whole, right? Or and at in least such a that way the that state this, might know it better than you do. Exactly. Yeah. So this higher, true self can then justify imposing various things on you as an individual, and I think he's very right that. That is very alarming, you know. If if you, you know, if if the reasoning is not only that the higher self knows best, but whatever the higher self knows and does is freedom, mm -hmm. and then that higher self is not only not the whole of you, it's not a, not only not a, a small part of you, but it is society or the state. Then you know, of course that. He's right to fear that that paves the way towards, you know, a totalitarian form of politics. Um, and that maybe that also, he's right about the fact that that also perverts a little bit the concept of what freedom itself might be. Um, and he, he has a quite good quote about this, right? He says, 
Well, it's one thing to say that I might be coerced for my own good, uh, which I am too blind to see. This may be, right? And he recognizes that that might be the case, uh, that you might have to do that on occasion for my benefit. And indeed, he says, it may even enlarge the scope of my liberty. But it is another thing to say that if it is for my good, then I am not being coerced in the first place, mm. uh, that I have in some way willed it, whether I know this or not, that I am free, <laughs> even while my poor earthly body and foolish mind reject it, he says, uh, and struggle against those who seek, however benevolently, to impose it with a greater desperation. And that was the part of the quote. Berlin's such a beautiful writer, isn't he? I know, right? He's so seductive in his uh, in his writing, and I can see I can see the worry there. I very much recognise it, and I can see the echoes again in the kind of simplistic pro Brexit argument. Mm. The, the the experts, you know, the, are telling you what to do. Are telling your or you, the ordinary voters, what to do. They know what's best for you, and what's best for you is going to you know set you free, <laughs> as it were. Right, and this immediately smacks of Berlin's suspicion that such arguments are, uh, you know, take us back to Plato with philosopher kings, the rational part of society guiding the other less rational parts, the the sort of impulsive, you know, workers and the um, uh, and the and the soldiers. So, you know, there is something there again, and of course, you know, this was not made fully explicit, but it was there in the arguments made by the Brexit campaign. But I just think it's wrong for Berlin to think that this is the only way to understand that 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 sort of side of positive freedom. And that it is important to recognize that, yes, sometimes, you know, we are vulnerable to being manipulated. And when we're manipulated, our our agency and our autonomy is compromised. Mm. And, you know, as I said before, we have examples of that when we talk about impulsive behavior, or we talk about people who are addicted to, to certain things, um, you know, and we can think of that in terms of uh, a divided self. And so there is a case I think you can make that, you know, one way of undermining people's autonomy is by manipulating them by feeding them lies. And, mm. you know, there's an argument that that was what happened to some extent, at least, uh, by by the Leave campaign, um, which led to Brexit. And so you could say that, you know, in some ways, that decision was not, you know, the authentic decision of of the people that voted for that thing, not because of not because the experts and the rational side of the of the society were saying, you know, that that wasn't the right thing to do. I I totally grant Berlin that that I think smacks of elitism and authoritarianism, and and we don't we shouldn't go there. Um, I think the idea of identifying any one group of people in society as its rational part or its true self uh, is very much appropriately identified as suspect of authoritarianism and elitism and all the rest of it. But that does not preclude the plausibility of, you know, the existence of more rational and less rational parts of ourselves, more impulsive parts of ourselves, and ways in which our autonomy can be compromised when those sides take over 
and the, you know, the reasoning part, you know, subsides in the background. So I'll, I'll sort of close with this, but I've got so much I want to say to this. That was, that was really good. Yeah, sorry, that was a very long uh, No, 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 I've been, I've been going on at length too. So I think there's something so interesting here, and I think the higher and lower self bit, or like the different... This is where I might be most sympathetic to Berlin, because on the one hand, it's, it's very obviously true that we do have different order desires, right? It seems a fairly banal insight, even, that a heroin addict both might desire heroin and to quit. Mm. Like, that's... And it's not just addiction, it's all sorts of things. That doesn't... That seems almost banal to me yeah. as an insight. At the same time, it's also pretty clear that you don't that going from that fairly obvious, banal even insight, to some quite weird and dangerous places doesn't take that many steps. Hmm. You know? You don't have to really grant that much from that to get to a sort of like forced to be free Rousseau type position, right? Mm -hmm. And again, of course, this all fits into the, the sort of historical context, which yeah. is a lot of how I read Berlin, in that there is this big insight they have in the 50s that actually Plato was pretty fascist, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they, they all sort of seem to twig this at the same time, and like, actually this dude was a bit fash, and Rousseau kind of had his moments too. Um, and, and there's a sort of suspicion mm -hmm. of... You know, I, I think, though, there is a pretty big gap between, like, people have different orders of desires, people can value better and worse things, right? People can be wrong about what it is that they want for themselves. <laughs> There's a pretty big gap between that and that there is some final platonic answer, much less an answer that a state can prescribe. Mm -hmm. to you. Um, and so my middle ground for this, I was going to talk about republicanism, but we're, I don't think we, we'll, we'll get to that now, but I'll go to my sort of answer for this is John Stuart Mill, essentially, in the, his you know, he's got this wonderful triad of concepts in chapter three of On Liberty, where he says the free development of individuality. So this is a much more comprehensive moral view of freedom than merely leaving people alone. It's a view, I would argue, that contains both positive and negative yeah. elements to it. I agree. And it's, it's not a view that's neutral with regards to what people might want to do with their lives. It says that there are higher and lower pleasures, which is something he got from Plato because we're a century earlier and people hadn't really realised that Plato was a bit fascist sometimes. Um, it definitely thinks that there are more and less valuable lives that people can lead, and that we we want them to lead the more valuable lives. Um, but it makes two moves that do, I think, still effectively close the gate to that sort of positive liberty leads to totalitarianism worry. Mm. They close the gate a bit later on. It's the outer citadel not the inner citadel, but I think it much more accurately tracks the world and our experiences of it. And of course people want autonomy. Of course people can make mistakes and be misled. And of course there are better and worse ways of living, right? You can sort of grant all of that. But then he makes two moves. And I think Mill's genius is never having to compromise one for the other. Mm. One move is to say, 
Individuals get stuff wrong about the best way to live all the time. States, when they're enforcing it on people, get it wrong more. Yeah. You know, it's a very simple, you know, this is a morally consequentialist argument, mm. right? This is a utilitarian argument that, yeah, people get it wrong all the time, but states or collectives tend to be worse. Um, because for one thing, they might try and impose a sort of one-size-fits-all model on people that's right for some people and not others. For another, there's all sorts of factors of like political corruption and like they might have other agendas that are masquerading as your good, but are in fact much more about what they want and so on and so forth. And Miller adds that when you let people experiment and sort of lead their lives, that way you'll get creativity and new ideas that'll move society forward. So I think those are all fairly obvious consequentialist arguments. Mm -hmm. But then the other side of Mill's argument is that it's good for people, that people like having autonomy, that they Mm -hmm. enjoy it, and that it makes them better people. And that's an argument against this sort of forced-to-be-free notion that far from shutting out the idea that there are better and worse things for people, embraces it and makes it internal to it. He says, um, let me see if I can do the quote, it really matters not only what men do, but the manner of men they are that do them, end quote. And the idea is that by having to make moral choices, by having to think about stuff, by having to be exposed to people we may disagree with or even despise, our life becomes richer and more valuable. So there's two sides to it, one of which is just a consequentialist thing. Yeah, people mess up all the time, Mm. but states mess up worse, and there's actually some good results to letting people mess up and experiment. But the other is this idea that if you care about people leading valuable lives, the the one thing you really don't want to do is um, put them in what Mill calls those narrow little boxes that society constructs to save its members the trouble of forming their own personalities. Um, and so that that's my argument, and this is, that was a little long, but this is like the sense in which I am much more of like a 19th century liberal than a 20th century liberal, is that just sort of feels correct to me. But like, yes, obviously there's different orders of desire, and yes, some people make great choices and other people make stupid choices. Mm. None of that implies this sort of authoritarian state control. What it does imply, though, is people do want resources. People do want education. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. People do want to have a a plurality of mechanisms of social support to enable them to fully enjoy that that autonomy. And I think that just leads fairly straightforwardly to a sort of progressive, egalitarian liberalism, which is sort of where I land politically. Anyway, that was quite long. I was going to say, yeah, no, that's all. That all sounds right to me. I, I was going to say that I think there's we need to draw a distinction between kind of a worry that you know people get it wrong, they made the wrong decision, as it were, like by voting for for Brexit, versus you know their their autonomy was in some way compromised. And I think Mill is very much concerned about that, right? And wants the state to do things that enable the the flourishing and the you know creating the conditions that allow people's autonomy to develop so so it's not so much as the state telling you you know you got it wrong so i'm going to you know now correct your decision and you know cancel brexit or whatever but it's more about creating 
you know, an environment and the conditions under which people's autonomy is less easily compromised and is able to kind of develop and flourish. And I agree that that is very much going to be part of or should be part of a kind of progressive uh, political agenda, which is why I think, you know, the left, broadly speaking, should be concerned with this positive side of of liberty and not and not shy away with uh, uh, shy away from it because of these uh you know negative connotations with authoritarian regimes or you know totalitarian political philosophy because i do think you can very much pull the two things apart you you don't have to go down the route of you know the state being the rational part of or the rational expression of you know the the citizens or the experts being the rational part of a society in order to in order to um to acknowledge that you know autonomy is a good thing and that the state shouldn't just you know let people be and not interfere with them but it should actively try and do things that augment um and allow people's autonomy to to flourish and you know i I, i've written this very short sort of um book um in greek which is a little introduction to philosophy through through news stories and the postscript to this chapter on on brexit and and freedom is on john john stuart mill and i exactly kind of try and highlight how he has both negative and positive conceptions of liberty in his philosophy and one way where we see that is the fact that he thinks you know education should be compulsory for example for children um because that will allow them to grow up to be you know adults that have more autonomy than if they if they didn't undergo uh, education and all of that just there's an element where sometimes the reason you it just seems quite common sense to me like there's nothing mm. about that that requires you to accept something that seems wild and it doesn't even require sort of sophisticated conceptual tools like an overlapping consensus or veil of ignorance or something like that yeah people mm. like having autonomy people make better decisions when they're you know educated it's not foolproof S- smart people can do stupid things but in general you know yeah yeah i completely agree i think it's interesting we both went to know with that one i guess the question would be why does one part of the political spectrum find that problematic or you know why does it oppose it um so that would be yeah that i guess that would be the, the you know trying to diagnose why it seems commonsensical or it seems an obvious thing to advocate if you have a certain type of politics but if you have a different type of politics why do people um kind of react to it negatively and think you know this is going down the route of uh paternalism and and you know the slippery slope from that to authoritarian and totalitarian politics I think, yeah, that would be the question. I think at its at its very core, if we're talking about the opposition um, from the political right, because you could imagine like a communist critique of the view we've just outlined as well, but from the mm. political right, I, th- 
I think when you really get right down to it, it's about when you look at human history and you look at human nature and human beings, is what you stress the continuity and the things that are permanent and stable, or is what you stress the pluralism and the adaptability and the changeability? Because Mill would stress, and I would too, that people throughout history have been very, very different. People change a lot over the course of their lives. Societies change a lot. And ultimately what you're trying to do is not arrest that change or stop it. What you're trying to do, or even direct it towards a set goal, it's the permanent interests of man as a progressive being, as he said. You're trying to just like keep it away from the worst and keep trying to make things better, right? Um, and it's, a, it's, it's an open-ended pluralist vision of human progress, right? It's not a Whiggish end of history type thing. It's just we want to keep we want to make keep make pe- making people's lives better, right? Now, in contrast, I think the conservative at their root wants to stress what is stable and permanent about human beings over time. They want to say, mm-hmm. you know, people are generally motivated by rational self-interest or on the sort of social right they really want to insist that there there are men and women and they have these defined roles and such like and that manifests as a social vision where you end up trying to enforce or get back to what um michael frieden calls extra human constraints on the social order so it's not open-ended there are things that there are laws of society, be it the laws of God, laws of the free market, the sort of immutable gender roles, or what have you. And we depart from these at our error. And the role of the conservative is always to round people back up and get them within the protection of those laws, right? And it's a different visualization of what it is we're trying to do. The liberal is visualizing it as charting new ground. You know, um, the conservative, the the liberal conception of progress is almost like walking up a flight of stairs, right? And that's the metaphor that's used, right? Um, The conservative doesn't conceptualize it that way. Justice or progress or whatever is not an ascent. It is an ideal from which we have fallen. You know, if only we had followed the laws of the free market, we wouldn't be in this mess. If only... You know, the Israelites hadn't rejected God, he wouldn't have cursed them. It, it's, it's, just, it's just a very different conceptualization of social space. Um, based on at its heart, when you see human history and society and people, do you stress the continuity or the change? Anyway, that was quite long. That's how I see that. Yeah. I think that's true. And of course, you know, it rings bells again uh, in terms of Brexit, because obviously that project was also in some way a nostalgic project, right? And it was a project that did see the UK having fallen from a previous position of glory and power uh, to which this exit from the European Union was going to, you know, reinstate it. which again, you know, has uh, some echoes in, in in something that Berlin talks about, which is an, a, a final version, maybe the most obscure version of of a positive liberty, which is to do with um, self-realization. The idea that 
being the, that one is only free when one is truly oneself and that to achieve this involves a process of you know self-realization um and a process that could could involve restrictions in some way to one's negative freedom maybe maybe it's too late to go into all of that but i do think that it's it's interesting to highlight that behind that decision about whether to stay in the european union or not was very much kind of what you described the image of the uk today as having fallen from a previous point of past glory to which we had to try and reinstate it versus a, a, a an image of the uk as kind of developing and moving forward into time and that being part of the U european union was the best sort of way to achieve that and it makes sense of the contradictions doesn't it that like that that is the through line because on the one hand there are huge contradictions on the conservative position on this you've told us forever it's all about the economy and we need to do whatever ensures gdp growth or whatever and then all of a sudden to hell with the economy if that's oh, what yeah, we need yeah. to do in order to do this but it makes sense when you realize the through line is a restoration of the rightful ordering of things so for my audience um, who might want to check out uh, your podcast, can you remind them what's it called and where should they go for that? So the podcast is called The Philosopher and the News, and you can find it um, either by Googling the, the title and finding the website of the podcast or on iTunes, on Spotify, all the places where you can find podcasts. The podcast is uh, created in partnership with The Philosopher, journal which is a public philosophy journal and so you can also listen to the podcast by visiting the philosopher's website cool and what about on your side um yeah it's the political philosophy podcast um you can just google it and the website is politicalphilosophypodcast.com i do a mixture of interviews and kind of solo things so follow me there I'm also on Twitter, Paul Phil Pod. I, although I tweet about really boring stuff like filibuster reform, so do that one at your own, <laughs> at your own caution. Yeah, and, and people can find me on Twitter at News Philosophy, if they so wish. All all of our audiences, you've you've got your go follow, go follow each other. Well, Toby Buckle, this was uh, super interesting. Thank you very much. No, thanks so much for doing this. Appreciate it, man.